Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Chris Hipgrave. Chris was referred to us by an earlier guest, Christopher Lockyer, and both Chris's are pretty exceptional, and today's Chris is truly a man of many talents, equally at home in a sea kayak, a wild water boat, surf ski, and honestly, probably anything else that floats. Chris has a great philosophy on performance paddling, and I'm glad you're here to listen. Hello, Chris. Welcome to Paddling the Blue. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. So, Chris, give us a little bit of information on your personal paddling background. Um, well, it's a long history. <laughs> I started uh, paddling when I was very young, um, started in a slalom kayak, and I was six years old, I think. And I did my first slalom race when I was nine. And then from there, it was just kind of a, uh, a landslide of, uh, of different types of paddling, racing, exploring, and just generally having fun in my kayak um, through today. So I've been paddling for about four decades now. So you've got quite a background, quite a, a wide range of experience. And you gave me a term earlier that I really liked, and that was performance paddling. So what got you started in performance paddling, Chris? I think it was a soft entry. I, I don't think I really understood what I was, what I was doing. But you know, starting off in slalom, obviously there's, there's a great deal of performance involved there. And, and I kind of break my performance paddling up into three buckets. There's the physical, the mental, and the technical. You've got to mention those are three glasses. You've got to keep filling those glasses up with your physical, technical, and mental knowledge in order to be the best paddler you can. And those glasses, if I, uh, those glasses start empty, right? So as a slalom paddler, I started filling up those glasses with those three pieces of knowledge. And, and then a slalom lost my interest and I went elsewhere. Uh, those glasses were suddenly empty again. So it was um, a chance to fill them up again. So that term that we use, performance paddling, you know, for me, every time I turn another corner and find something else that grabs my attention, the goal is to fill those three glasses up and and to become a performance paddler um, in that particular that particular area, whether it's expedition paddling, whitewater, surf ski, sea kayak, whatever it is. You know, my goal is to try and be the best paddler I can. So, what's what's filling your glasses right now? Um, right now, surf ski is a big part of my life. Um, surf skis are these really long, skinny sit on tops. So. My day-to-day boat is 21 feet long, but only 17 inches wide at the waterline. And it's a composite boat. It's a sit-on-top, and it's designed for racing in the ocean primarily. So I do a lot of racing, not just in the ocean, but also flat water. So that's learning, that's learning the forward stroke, the perfect forward stroke, um, from which you might you know, which we always talk about in sea kayaking. But at the highest level, it's executed there by our Olympic sprint paddlers. So you've got that aspect. But then we also know how to surf swells and that type of stuff when we're racing in the ocean. It's a really multi-dimensional sport. It's really, really fun. So that's, that's a big pursuit right now. And then um, I had a few injuries last year. So this year, I'm also turning my attention later in the year to... Uh, to doing some more creek racing, some of this class five racing, which is really, really fun. And then at the end of uh, 2020, I'm heading back to Antarctica to, um, um, to um, do some more sea kayak guiding down there. 
So that's my that's my goal in 2020. Those are my three three big buckets. Very cool. So tell me some tell me about some of your uh, some of your surf ski history here. Um, well, I I found surf ski pretty late, pretty late in life. Um, but m- all of the other sports I've done, and uh, so all of the other competitive sports I've done within paddling have all kind of been loner sports. So what I mean by that is is when they say go in slalom, you're on the course by yourself. When they say go in wild water, it's just you and the river. Surf ski is, is very different. Now, there might be two, three, four, five hundred people all lined up on that start line. And when they say go, we've all got to figure it out. And it's really, really fun being around people. And to me, that was the draw. Just, uh, just to mix it up shoulder to shoulder rather than being just you and the river or you and the chunk of water. Yeah, that really attracted me to it, and it didn't take long for it to suck me in, and I ended up going down the, the surf ski rabbit hole. So I've only been doing surf ski for like less than 10 years. It's, it's been a really fun journey. So what are some of your favorite races that you've done? Oh, gosh. Um, my single favorite race has to be the Gorge Downwind Championships. It's on the Columbia River uh, near Hood River, Oregon. I know, I know it sounds crazy referencing a river, but the, the Columbia River is massive. So it's hundreds of thousands of cubic feet per second, CFS, of moving water heading towards the Pacific Ocean. But uh, in the summer, they have the hot desert to the east of the Cascades, and you've got the cold Pacific over there by Portland. So you get huge, huge winds coming up the Columbia River Gorge going against that current. So you get these huge swells moving upstream uh, on the Columbia River. So we're using our surf skis for that, and it's super fun. I mean, you can have these huge slugs of these huge swells, which you would normally associate with the ocean, but you're on a freshwater river that's a mile wide. So that is by far my favorite race of the year. And of course, it helps it's in North America. Um, Yeah, so I'll, I'll be heading back out there again this summer for sure. So what is it about that specific race? Is it just the, the water, the environment? Uh, what, what is it that drives you on that one? Uh, all of the above. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's an amazing location. So you've got, as you're paddling, you've got snow-capped Mount Hood to your right, snow-capped Mount Adams to your left. That doesn't, that doesn't hurt. No, sure. And of course, you're, you're paddling freshwater, which is really, really neat uh, and unique for a surf ski race where you would normally be in the ocean you can literally paddle to a coffee shop or to a brewery like get out of your boom five minutes later you're eating or drinking and having fun and it has hundreds and hundreds of people from all over the world so it gives us a chance to compare ourselves and to learn from the best people in in the sport it's a really 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 cool environment so you mentioned that um you know a lot of the other races were just you in the river and uh, although you've got other people in the race with you it's it's still you in the river. You're still inside your head. Correct. You know, uh, I I raced wild um, pretty serious just over a decade, and wild water uh, races for anywhere from fifteen to twenty five minutes typically, and it's us on the river. But you're started at intervals, so you'll start, and a minute behind you, the next person will start, and a minute behind them, the next person starts. You never really know how you're doing until you see the results. But you're right. It's it's you and it's the river. So you're still very you're still very much in the moment. 
So for our, our listeners' benefit and for, for my benefit, can you give a little definition of wild water so everybody knows what we're, we're talking about? Well, wild water is a, it's a non-Olympic discipline governed by the International Canoe Federation. And we use four and a half meter composite kayaks. And they're shaped like lawn, they're shaped like lawn darts. They're shaped like lawn darts. They've got really, really wide back ends and really, really sharp front ends. And they're shaped like that to meet rules. Um, and we race down whitewater as fast as you can. The guy with the fastest time wins. It's that simple. There's no, there's no firm route. It's a start line and a finish line. So you, so you need to learn the river. You need to learn where the fast whitewater is, where the shortcuts are. You know, all this while paddling a composite boat that, that's featherweight while trying not to break it on the rocks and the whitewater. Yeah, it's I'd imagine that's, that's quite a challenge. Fun. <laughs> really, really fun. Yeah. You mentioned that's like a 15 minute downriver sprint. Yeah. I mean, typically, so we race two disciplines, sprint and classic. The classic race used to be around 25, 20, 25 minutes when I first started. More these days, it's down around 15 minutes. And then there's the sprint discipline. Sprint is all out. And those are typically 45 to 60 seconds. I am not very good at the sprint. <laughs> I'm. I'm definitely more of a distance guy. So I, I kind of just focus more on the classic stuff. Which... So what kind of distance will you cover over that uh, 15 to 25 minutes in, in a downriver race? Um, I, I, so I live on the Nantahala River. So we have a, it's, the Nantahala runs 350 days a year. It's eight miles long. So that's kind of my typical training run. And so that eight, it's 8.2 miles top to bottom. And you no, know, without killing myself that's a 48 minute paddle so you're going pretty fast the the shape that you mentioned so you said uh four and a half meter long shaped like a lawn dart composite boat what's the uh, the idea behind the shape so give us a little bit of the idea of the physics there uh well actually it's shape purely based on history so wild water's been around at the international level since the 1940s then those rules made sense that the boat had to be four and a half meters long 60 centimeters wide but as manufacturing technology composite technology came in and people and hydrodynamics we realized we could get faster boats but those rules those boats have to meet those same rather arbitrary rules that were written a long long time ago um, so that's why we have these shapes so at the waterline the boat is still very narrow uh, and uh, with very little rocker for maximum speed, but those those big wipes, those big 60 centimeter widths that we have to meet are well out of the water. So that doesn't slow us down, but it gives us a lot of secondary stability. So you've got some other experience. You mentioned slalom. So tell us a little bit about your slalom background. Oh, I was terrible at slalom. <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, Olympic slalom is the... I'm sure many. I'm sure many of your listeners have seen it, but mm -hmm. um, it is one of the two Olympic canoe and kayak disciplines. And the races are fairly short, um, and you're going through these gates, and you have to go through the gates in sequence, in on white water. And some gates you paddle are going upstream, and some you're going downstream. Uh, red gates are up, green gates, green gates are down. And um, yeah, it's a really dynamic acrobatic sport these days. Um, back when I started, slalom races were, you know, in the 
two to three minute range, but, but these days they're half that or less. Um, and these days as well, we're seeing them done a lot, um, artificial slalom courses, whereas, you know, again, 100 years ago, there was no such artificial slalom course. It was all done on natural rivers. But, but today, it's real, today, watching it today is phenomenal. These guys are just incredible athletes, powerful, fast, acrobatic. Yeah, it's a beautiful sport to watch when it's done well. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is quite quite amazing to watch. And you had also mentioned sprint racing as well. So you get some some uh, slalom sprint, uh, the downriver um, wild water, the surf ski. Tell us a little bit about your sprint background too. Uh, I actually I don't really have any sprint background. Um, oh. So sprint um, sprint is always somewhere that I look for um, places to learn. Um, the forward stroke is something we're always trying to perfect, whether we're a sea kayaker, a wild water paddler, or a surf ski paddler. And the Olympic sprint guys are the most invested in the perfection of that forward stroke. So sprint has always been someplace where I've, uh, I've always turned to for my inspiration, whether it's talking to coaches, you know, talking to athletes, um, that's sitting in on on um, on trainings, um, getting videoed by a good coach, um, it's it's an incredible source of uh, it's an incredible resource to look at. To a degree, you know, uh, the longest sprint the longest sprint race is three and a half minutes, whereas you know, the shortest surf ski race is probably forty five. So there are some things that we have to look at with a grain of salt, but um, but yeah, the forward the the sprint forward stroke is is truly beautiful again when it's, when it's executed correctly and and we've seen some really interesting progression of the forward stroke over the last decade or so as well um, at the at the olympic sprint level so it's been fun taking some of that some of that over to surf ski and wild water as we continue to play with our forward strokes yeah and you've got some experience in the uh, olympic sport as well right yeah after the athens olympics in 2004, um, ended up getting hired by USA Canoe and Kayak, which is, at the time, was the national governing body under the US Olympic Committee. So I got hired by them as the Olympic High Performance Director for Olympic Slalom and Olympic Sprint um, for the Beijing Quad. So we spent the last, the next four years hiring coaches and working closely with the Olympic Committee um, to execute execute a Beijing Olympics. So I got to go to Beijing a, a handful of times and, and to work with, work with some obviously amazing athletes at the very pinnacle of their careers. Um, it, was, it was a very interesting four years. It's not, not a four years I would care to repeat, but it was <laughs> very, very interesting. So what, what was your role specifically uh, in that? Um, as... Uh, as Olympic High Performance Director, I honestly, I found myself being the no guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, the athletes wanted more, you know, the, the, the coaches want more, the Olympic Committee wanted more, you know, and, and it's just more money, more time, more resources, more results. And I was the guy that had to find the balance in all of that to try and keep everybody happy in the chain. Uh. So... Um, yeah, like I said, it was a very interesting opportunity and one I'm grateful that I had. I learned a lot, but it's not not something that I would ever choose to do again. Wow. Stressful times I'm hearing. 
Yes, yeah, it, it was very stressful and and somewhat disappointing. Uh, uh. I think um, before that opportunity, I very much viewed the Olympic as really the pinnacle of the sport, and it's it's almost um, unattainable level of athletic accomplishment. But then had, uh, getting to look under the curtain, behind the curtain, at what the sport was about, what the Olympics was all about, kind of took the uh, took the luster off, off off of what it is, and seeing uh, seeing the athletes used as pawns, as 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 people in suits, bargaining about money and TV rights and all that kind of stuff, and finding out that that very much drove a lot of the narrative of the Olympics again again kind of uh changing my mind about what the other what about what the olympics really are yeah you're right we have this this picture in our head of of what's going on behind the scenes and uh, from that seeing what truly goes down behind the scenes gives you a much different picture of it all for sure and 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 to be clear you know the pursuit of excellence in any sport is should be should be um applauded by anybody, regardless of the sport, um, even canoe and kayak, it's an amazing journey, and it's a journey that everybody should try and try and do. Whether they're trying to, whether they're trying to be the best driver, or whether they're trying to be the best uh, best sprint athlete, it doesn't matter what it is. It's an pursuit, and they should be applauded. So I definitely don't want to take anything away from that and chase it. And if your dreams are to go go to the Olympics, absolutely go for it. Well, to get uh, there's a but there's very, very few people that actually make it that far. Yeah. Well, to get back to that pursuit of excellence, you mentioned that uh, you were bringing some of the learning from sprint into your surf ski life. So tell us a little bit about some of that learning and uh, some of the things you're bringing into the, from, from the forward stroke there. So um, I think I mentioned earlier that I break my, I, I break my pools of knowledge into three glasses. So the physical technical and mental aspects of it so from a sheer technical standpoint an efficient forward stroke is a fast stroke and that's gonna gonna that's gonna propel you to the front pack in surf ski you need to be fast and have a really efficient forward stroke so again again as i've mentioned sprint is a very great place to look for for that level of knowledge so that's where you can feel some of these aspects of of the forwards and apply them to to surf ski, but ski isn't done on a linear playing field. Um, Olympic sprint is you know, generally the water's dead flat, whereas surf skis are designed for the ocean. So it's a three-dimensional playing field. So that forward stroke has to be adaptable. It has to be able to work when you're flying down a swell at 20 miles an hour that you're sprinting to get on a swell or you're trying to outrun a wave that's about to break you. So it has to be a very adaptable forward stroke. Um, and you know, so that's the technical side of things. And then there's, you know, there's the physical side, the ability to physically put in that power, um, that, that physical ability to push that boat forwards, again, to accomplish the same things that we've just talked about. And then, of course, the mental side, you know, do you have the do you have the mental fortitude to commit to drive down that huge three meter swell into surf, or is your brain saying hell no? <laughs> and um, so, you, so you need to train your brain in order to do that kind of stuff. So now these are all these are uh, what I've just discussed. What I've just covered is, 
is at a very high level, but you know, those are, those are the, essentially the three buckets that I like to work on that I bring to Surfski and I work on day to day, month to month. So assuming, assuming someone has the, uh, the, the physical ability and the mental fortitude to go forward with that for, for some of our listeners who might be looking to improve their forward stroke, are there any specific nuggets of wisdom that you might have that you want to pass along to anyone? Yeah, I, there's, so I, I actually get to t- teach forward stroke a good bit. Um, I find myself doing it more and more at sea kayak symposiums. And the number one piece of feedback that I would give anybody is that paddling forward is not the act of pulling the paddle through the water. It's actually the act of creating an anchor with the paddle and then pushing the boat forwards with your lower body, with your legs. And uh, that's as simple as that sounds. That, that is the biggest broken, uh, broken chain that I, see, uh, that I see most people doing. In, but not, not just in sea kayaks, but sea kayaks, surf skis, white water, you name it. So um, let's, let's, I'm going to go back to the racing for just a little bit. What is it about racing? That, why, why do you race? That's a great question. And it's a question my wife asked me not long ago. <laughs> she was, what motivates you to do the day? Again, the pursuit of excellence drives me. Knowing what my training plan says I should do and knowing why I'm doing that particular exercise that day and how it could make me a better paddler, I find massively motivating. And that's the hard journey. The raining is the hard journey. It's waking up when it's raining and snowy and crappy and you don't want to be out there. That's the hard bit. But the easy bit is race day. You've done all the hard work, and now it's a chance to see if you, put, if you can put it all together, see if, you can, see if you can beat that guy that's beating you, see if you can get on him for the first time, see if you can set a PR, whatever it is. Racing's almost the day, and um, you know, I, I really, really enjoy being tested. I'm a very competitive uh, naturally. Being first, I don't like being beaten, even if even if it's driving to work. Um, <laughs> so, 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 yeah, I think that I think that's what it is. So you talked about the motivation, the planning, the execution. And uh, one of the things that we were talking about before the interview was a lot of the other pursuits that you've done uh, around the world and how those really relate to for performance paddling. And we mentioned uh, your expeditions to uh, Bhutan. So tell us a little bit about those and how those translate to your, to your racing life and to the three buckets. I call, it, I call everything that I try to do at a high level performance paddling. And that doesn't matter. That doesn't there's no difference between you know, trying to win a Sersky race or trying to uh, put together a great paddling trip, first descent in the Himalayan mountains in Bhutan. It's all a journey to get to that easy day. So it's that preparation, it's the planning, it's the research, finding out what you need to do and then flawlessly executing it while also have the, having the adaptability within that, within that structure to change challenges that are going to get thrown your way so that's to me that's all performance paddling and um you know, you touched on my, my two trips to bhutan you know these the bhutan's a kingdom in the uh, in the himalayas it's about the size of west virginia and you know during one of those trips we had a chance to do a pretty major first descent where we you know, came into the country and figured out how to get as far upstream as we could really close to the base of some unclimbed 20,000 foot mountains and we successfully paddled down that river. It sounds very simple, 
what I've just described, the outcome, but it took months and months and months of preparation in order to get there. And that, and that preparation is no different than trying to get on the podium at a race. So were you there as a, a state-sponsored trip, or yeah, how'd you end up getting to Bataan? Some really good friends of mine, Nick and Maria Williams, they got a contract with the Bhutanese government. So neighboring Nepal has some similar infrastructure in terms of uh, similar natural wonders. Basically, they have lots and lots of rivers. And in Nepal, there's tons and tons of, there's tons and tons of whitewater rafting going on. But all of those, all of those businesses in, in Nepal are owned by Westerners. So the Nepalese do all the hard work and all the money leaves the country. So Bhutan wanted to put in adventure tourism, and they, but they wanted to set it up as being state-owned state so that the tourists would come in, they'd have similar experiences on some amazing whitewater rivers, but the operations would be owned and operated by the Bhutanese. So the Bhutanese benefited from their own resources. So absolutely amazing. So they reached out to Nick and Maria, and they said, will you come over here and will you, we'll give you a car, we'll give you some folks, drive around the country, We'll drive around the country and paddle all of our rivers, many of which had never been paddled before, and tell us what we've got and what, where we should put some rafting operations. And of course, they said yes. That was how I ended up in Bhutan twice. And gosh, what a what! A, and it was such a special journey. Absolutely amazing place. And so, how has that worked out for the the Bhutanese? I think it came well. Um, but, uh, I think even just this year, Bhutan was rated the number one place to go by National Geographic. And the, the folks I still talk to in Bhutan, the Bhutanese, my, my friends over there um, that I still chat with, you know, they say it's going pretty well. And adventure tourists definitely started to take off in a controlled fashion. So whether it's whitewater, um, birding, climbing, trekking, uh, it's all taking place there, but in a very controlled and sustainable fashion sadly doesn't happen across the board isn't necessarily happening across the border in in nepal yeah it's 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 quite an interesting approach that the bhutanese government stepped in and wanted to wanted to take that step and wanted to kind of have ownership of it not necessarily as a as a governmental body but have the 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 residents the citizens have ownership of the tourism bhutan itself is a very very special place it's a it's a kingdom um but the king of bhutan um notably stood in front of the United Nations and, and told them that he was more concerned about gross national happiness than about gross national product. That was his most famous speech that he gave. It's a very, it's an incredible country where national dress and national dress is still uh, worn. Buddha, Buddhism is still widely, widely practiced across the country. Just some very, very special people and some with some very, very special, values um, are there and it, it truly is a magical country it's one that I would very very much like to get back to one day my uh, my wife and I actually got married there Boy, think of what we could accomplish as a society if we focused on gross national happiness isn't that the truth <laughs> earlier in the interview mentioned uh, you know your your race plans for the year and you also kind of slipped in at the end there guiding in it guiding in Antarctica. So tell us a little bit about the guiding uh, process that's coming up. I guide for a company called Aurora Expeditions. Aurora operates some of the smallest boats down in Antarctica. So we're all based on essentially these teeny-weeny um, ice-hardened cruise ships. It's 
but this isn't this isn't your mum and dad's cruise ship. So I think when we say cruise ship, you think of these things going up and down the Caribbean with buffets and drinks and uh, all that kind of nonsense. Now that's that's not what these guys are about. Aurora is a 100% activity company. So if you're if you're traveling with Aurora, whether it's the Arctic, Antarctic, or elsewhere, you're getting off the boat. You're 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 skiing. You're snowshoeing. You're kayaking. Um, at the very least, you're in a zodiac looking at some amazing wildlife. So I'm a sea kayak guide for Aurora. So I get to go down to Antarctica and, uh, and share that very, very special place um, with some really, really cool people. That sounds like a pretty terrible gig to have to, have to endure. It's awful, John. I would uh, <laughs> highly encourage you not to go. <laughs> so how did no, you get... It's a, it, 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 it truly is an amazing place. You know, I've... Uh, I've had a chance to travel, safely, as you can guess, and Antarctica is the one place where I can honestly say it's almost unfathomable that you're on the same. It's so alien down there, so alien. Wow. So how did you get hooked up with Aurora? Um, again, friends. Okay. That knowing the right, knowing the right people. So a friend of mine up here, Bob Powell, a friend, a guy I paddle with a ton. He did his thesis um, on Antarctic, and so he was guiding through Aurora and data down there for his thesis. And I always thought that was a really cool thing to do. And I had a point in my life where I realized I could do it. So Bob introduced me to people and um, introduced me to a guy called uh, Al Backer, who runs kayaking adventure trips all around the world. Al and I hit it off, and boom. Uh, when I was guiding in Antarctica, um, it's not you, know, you still got you still have to get um, some qualification to back that up from the Coast Guard and, and that kind of stuff. But um, um, but yeah, I've never looked back. It's truly an amazing place. Yeah, I imagine that this not just a, an ACA certification and then an online course through the Coast Guard. So what kind of qualifications do you end, <laughs> end up needing? Right. So, so the key. So the first one um, is obviously the ability to to safely guide people sea kayaking. So that does come with experience, firstly, but secondly, having a piece of paper that says you can do it also helps. So for us here in America, that would be through the ACA. Elsewhere, it might be British canoeing or whatever whatever the qualification might be in in your country. Uh, the next piece is the Coast Guard STCW. So. It's, the STCW is executed in North America by the U.S. Coast Guard, but it's actually a global qualification. And you spend five days learning how to deal with anything that might come up on a ship. So one, one day, for example, we were in firefighting gear, learning how to put out fires on a ship. Um, then you're also dealing like with, uh, another day, we were learning how to deal with contagion, which is obviously you know, a good thing to think about today. We're in the middle of this corona outbreak. So, you know, what if that happened on a ship? How would you deal with that? Uh, so that's a five-day pass-and-fail course through the Coast Guard. And then the big one is, is uh, actually an online test that you take through the um, International Antarctic Treaty Organization, IOTO. Basically, you need to prove through a test that you've, that you've got the knowledge to know do around certain wildlife like how far can you approach a whale for example what should you do at penguin colonies um, so this is wildlife aspect and then there's the 
then there's the location aspects. And when you when you rock into the beach at um, Salisbury Plain on South Georgia Island, where can you go? Where go? Where are the risks? Uh, where where are the avalanches likely to happen? That's an exhaustive exhaustive test um, that takes on a good day five four to five hours, after, even after you've done all the all the reading to back it up. So I can certainly see you now, aside from the physical beauty and, and, and the, just the sheer intensity of the place, I can certainly see how that's another one that fits into those three buckets for you of the physical, mental, and technical, and then combines all the motivation, the planning, and the execution, the things that, that you love about paddling. Um, yeah, I, I think that's the draw. When you're guiding guests in Antarctica, you can't get it wrong, right? I mean, the water the water's right at freezing. You've got ice moving around. You've got big mammals swimming around in the water. It's an environment that deserves a great deal of respect. So, so it's fun getting those three buckets filled up and then going down there and doing a great job. So, Chris, we've got lots of listeners that have lots of different goals. And uh, so I'm curious, what advice would you give to someone who's either considering racing or undertaking a big ex- expedition goal or just has some huge goal in life that they'd like to accomplish through paddling? Any specific advice that you have for them? First things first, write that goal down and share it with your friend because the, your friends and family can then hold you accountable as you move towards that major goal. Secondly, I would say create little which will move you on a path towards your major goal. And again, share those with your friends and family so they can hold you accountable. And then as you move through those goals, back it up with knowledge. Knowledge is power. Think about those three glasses those college that I've talked about, the technical, the physical, and the mental. There's a lot of resources online, books, etc. Talk to coaches, uh, anyone else that might be able to help you move, move through those incremental goals towards your big major goal, and it will happen for you. Well, Chris, I really appreciate your time. Really appreciate uh, listening to uh, you know, the wisdom that you have here. Chris, how, how else could listeners contact you? Um, I've got a website, chrissepgrave.com, where I try and blog about some of my exploits, though I admit I have been particularly lazy about putting anything up, up, to, up to date out there the last couple of months. But I'm also on Facebook. You can find me on Facebook, and I'm on Instagram, posting pictures from my adventures at hipgravechris. And Chris, what's the next big adventure for you? Well, the next big adventure is trying to get, get the coronavirus, John. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Once we get through that, my next big goal will be the Gorge Downwind Champs in, in the summer, back out in the Hood River. And, um, and then I'll be back in Antarctica this winter guiding again. So and there's a bunch of, bunch of races and a bunch of stuff in between, but those are the two big ones this year. Well, Chris, again, thank you. And uh, I know that I'm going to go away and uh, spend some time here thinking about how, uh, how I can fill those physical, mental, and technical buckets as well. So, Chris, one last question for you. Who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue? That's a great question, John. And the name that immediately came to mind is a friend of mine called Carter Johnson. Carter is one of the most passionate paddlers I know that happens to also have a pocket full of world records in various various crazy parts of this sport. And uh, he's just a wonderful, wonderfully engaging and interesting individual that I think you'd really enjoy talking to. 
Fantastic. I will uh, I'll collect the contact information from you. And as well, you've given me some other information here that I'll make sure I get in the show notes so our listeners can take advantage of that knowledge and fill their own buckets. Chris, again, thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate uh, learning from you. And I know our listeners are really going to enjoy the interview as well. So thank you. Thank you, John. It was a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Chris Hipgrave. As I said at the beginning, a man of many talents. I personally like his focus on the three buckets of physical, mental, and technical knowledge. Our next episode is going to feature Zach Cruzens, and we're going to follow Zach to Patagonia, where we'll be talking about his trip down the Rio Santa Cruz in Patagonia. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.